Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. The votes are all in and have been counted, and unfortunately we're stuck with this host for another two years. Now I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine, coming to you 100% way pre-recorded because as this show goes out, I will be uh, in the air flying back from Las Vegas, back from the West Coast Pipe Show. Uh, Reminder, you must be of the legal smoking age wherever you are in order to listen to this fine show so if you're under that legal smoking age turn it off click and uh, come back when you're old enough promise we'll still be here maybe uh on tonight's show i'm going to continue with uh quintessential pipes we'll uh we'll take it up and up the dollar amount a little bit uh but we'll keep talking with that my guest tonight is Mark Johnson. Mark has uh, been in uh, retail, in, uh, retail tobacconist, and then a uh, professor, and now has written a book, and he's a pipe smoker. So uh, check that out. It's, uh, it's exciting. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, next week's show, I'll uh, recap the West Coast Pipe Show. Uh, this week, instead of a mailbag, uh, I've got a little travel story for you, and one of the reasons why I'm still, why I'm flying back from Las Vegas as this show goes out, but I'll tell you about that. Uh, music, rant, standard stuff coming up, but of course no mailbag because right now as I'm pre-recording this, we are watching the election returns come in, and I refuse to talk politics on this wonderful show, and You know, I think maybe a lot of these politicians really ought to be pipe smokers because, you know, if you put your pipe in your mouth, it's really hard to say too many things stupid. Um, I managed to get a few out here and there, but, uh, you know, with your pipe in your mouth, it's hard to talk. So uh, (laughs) be nice to see pipe smoking politicians again, wouldn't it? All right, let's get the show rolling. Everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in. And here we go. There's nothing quite like working in my shop or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show and uh, for pipe parts. And remember, uh, if you have any comments or questions, please email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com or post them on the Pipes Magazine radio show page because I'm sure you're going to have some opinions on these. And uh, this, remember, I'm the leading expert on my own opinion. And, uh, and here it goes. All right. So last week we talked about the big factories. Uh, you know, the big factory made pipes that I think everybody should have tried at least once. And, and again, whether you buy them brand new or an estate doesn't matter to me. I just want you to make sure that if you buy it as an estate, that it's very clean and in good shape. Next level up is where you get into the artisans and handmade and hand, you know, the, 
the the guys that you hear on this show and so on and so on now i'm going to limit this and uh, the only rule that i've put on myself is that the pipe maker has to have been making pipes for 10 plus years or more in order for in order to make this list of mine that's it that's the only thing that i can truly say is a limitation to it other than that there's a ton of great people that could fit on this list uh and i'll and i'll talk first about the handmade artisan pipe maker that kind of changed my mind's eye and pushed me to the next level uh and that is jt cook uh the first jt cook pipe i got was 2003 i believe two or three, maybe three or four, somewhere around there. And that's when I first really understood the differences between those big factory names that I talked about earlier and some of the, uh, and, and what a handmade pipe really is. Uh, so now you're going to be, now you're talking about some serious money, uh, but you're up in the range of JT Cook uh, from a couple weeks ago. Jeff Grasick, Jay Allen Pipes, uh, another one, uh, my friend Jody Davis, if you can find an estate pipe of his, and again, I'm talking about estate pipes, and these are the guys that have been consistently making pipes for 10 plus years. Uh, Brad Pullman is another perfect example of a guy that sometimes flies under the radar, but yet you always see his pipes go up on smokingpipes.com, and he sells out real quick. Uh Going overseas, you want a real good classic, uh, you want a good classic solid handmade pipe, uh, look at Ashton, the Ashton brand of pipes. Uh, you want to go to go to Denmark. Now, when you get into Denmark and you get into some of the high air, such as the Lars, uh, the Eversons, Conowitzes, S-Bangs, Bo Nords, uh yeah now we're talking a whole different strata and i don't even want to include those but if you want to look at a guy that i think makes an absolutely great pipe and you can find him on the estate market for 350 to 400 dollars tom eltang is a perfect example uh hans nielsen former former pipes occasionally you'll see those estate pipes down into that range of what we were talking about with some of the american guys uh, that's another one. And once you get into those guys, or even some of the uh, some of the S-Bang Sandblasts, you'll find them down in that reasonable range. Uh, or not, you'll, you'll find them more in that obtainable range. And again, this is all my opinion, of which I'm the leading expert on. Uh, but when you get into those guys, you're talking about a good, a really good quality handmade pipe that just doesn't quite have... Uh, the collectability of a super high end and when you get into some of the super high end guys you know i don't even want to go there with you um a couple other brands that i think go uh you know that, that get left behind or uh, not brands but pipe makers that get left behind uh peter matzold peter makes absolutely great pipes i've owned a couple and they're and they're perfectly wonderful uh going overseas to japan look at suge in the ikibana line 
uh, just great handmade pipes. And if you can find an estate in a shape that you like, grab it. Uh, but that will take you to the next level. And how do you get to this next level? Well, again, it becomes a process unless you've got a money tree growing in the backyard or you save all your pennies and, uh, you know, you, you uh, recycle aluminum cans for a year or so. Um, you know, you just keep trading up and working up and working your way up into this. And that's exactly what I did. I started doing it uh, really 18 years ago, 19 years ago. And now my pipe collection or my pipe, uh, my pipe cabinet is filled with about uh, 75 pipes. And again, last week at the West Coast Pipe Show, I took some of them to sell with no intention to buy anything. I just took them to sell and you know somewhere down the road hey you know and those again those aren't they're not that they're bad pipes that i took they're just pipes that just weren't getting smoked that often so that's how i keep building up my collection until i get to the point where yeah heck i'll i'll have too many pipes um I really don't think that anybody, unless you've got an emotional attachment to them or you can afford to have them sitting there, if you've got more pipes than, than what you're smoking, get rid of the ones that you're not smoking and trade up to them. If you have any uh, any uh, any artists and pipe makers that are on this list that you think should be there, please let me know. Post them on the Pipes Magazine radio show page and again, share the... Share the information and tell us a little bit about what you uh, what you kind of like about it. All right, in just a moment, Mark Johnson. This is Internet Radio. Have a look in your tobacco cellar. What do you see? Think of what you smoke, what you age, what you're drawn to in a blend that keeps you wanting more. That's your taste, and whether you know it or not, You've been leading that expedition since you first picked up a pipe just by smoking what you like and liking what you smoke. But the funny thing about taste, it changes and you need a wide selection to accommodate it. We at Smoking Pipes know this and you know it too. So whether you're searching for a tried and true favorite or a singular boutique mixture, we're here to help you navigate the voyage of your evolving tastes. But you're still at the helm. Smoking pipes in faithful service of the hobby. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. And joining us is, uh, is an author, teacher, professor, uh, former... You, You've worked in just about every part of the tobacco trade on the front end, so uh, and now you've also written a novel that's coming out shortly uh, based off of the Sherlock Holmes characters, but Mark Johnson, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so let's get to know you first. Uh, where did you okay. where did you grow up and when did you first smoke a pipe? I am a native Louisvillian, so I've always been here with a short stint away in the D.C. area when I was uh, in my early 20s. And I started smoking a pipe about when I was 19 or 20. Uh, so that's a, that's a good 44 years ago now, 45 years ago. 
And of course, I started with a uh, drugstore pipe, um, some of the over-the-counter brands. And my father, who also smoked pipe, worked for Brown and Williamson Tobacco after he retired from Louisville Fire Department. So he supplied me with enough Sir Walter Raleigh to keep me going. But I was really interested in in trying other things. And I uh, ventured into other pipes and tobaccos. And by the time I was in my mid-20s, I was uh, away from the drugstore tobaccos and bought a couple of really fine pipes, I thought. They were certainly very pricey for my budget at the time. And I've never really looked back since. So uh, how long did it take you to try different tobaccos, or did you stick with the uh, with the drugstore tobaccos for a while? I ran into a shop in Louisville, Brian, uh, that was called Sir Calabash. It was in a mall that is now defunct, the Bashford Manor Mall. And Sir Calabash was run by a fellow by the name of Al Eaton, who had taken a break from teaching in Jefferson County Public Schools. He was a science teacher because he wanted to open his own tobacco shop. And there were two in the area at the time, and they had been pretty well established. And Sir Calabash was a new venture for him. And it was close to my house. I lived probably three blocks from Bashford Manor Mall at that time. And I could walk over to Sir Calabash and check out all of his house blends. And naturally, when I stumbled into Bashford Manor one day and came across Sir Calabash and smelled a wonderful pipe smoke coming out of there. Um, Al was smoking a uh, rather large calabash himself at that point in time. He sort of made it an advertising point, I guess. And I stumbled in, and, and um, that made the difference. I started trying his house tobaccos pretty fast and, of course, uh, smoked a lot of the aromatic blends uh, before Al introduced me to some other blends that he was just getting in and some other tin tobaccos that sort of won my favor. <laughs> and, and then it's been all downhill ever since. That's about right, yeah. I've, I've kept much of my favorites. I've expanded the list of tobaccos that I will smoke. Of course, many of those things that I had available then quite uh, quite readily are gone now. You just cannot get them. They, they're out of production, which I'm very sad about, but there's always some really good stuff to smoke. Ah. Uh. Uh, what other, uh, so you were in DC for a while? Yes. Uh, when I, uh, when I left Louisville, it was with a former spouse and she was going to work at the national institutes of health in a nursing job. And I was due to start college. I had, um, I had a plan to get a four year degree and then go into the seminary, uh, which didn't really work out in the long run. But while I, uh, when I arrived in, in, D.C., I walked into Georgetown Tobacco Shop over at the Montgomery Mall, and within a day, I had a job. Wow. <laughs> so they must, yeah. have, they, they must have liked you. And, uh, and of course, I, I know David Berkabile from my time at the Trade Association, but that would have been... Uh, God, that would have been back when Georgetown had... Didn't they have a couple of stores around the D.C. area? They had three stores, the, the main one in Georgetown on M Street, the Montgomery Mall store, which was a tiny little store when I first went into it, uh, and then the Tyson Corner store. So they had three stores going, and they were going really well. The person that got me in, though, 
was Dave Barnes, and it's it's worth a trip down memory lane, I think, just to tell you this. When I walked in, Dave was there, and I don't know if you remember Dave Barnes. Yeah. I don't know if you even had a chance to meet him. Yeah, I did. Yeah, he long. was kind of a he was kind of a kind of a gruff guy, you know. Yep. Um, had a good sense of humor, very dry. But I asked him, I said, are you looking for any help? And he said, well, it depends. <laughs> so what, uh, what, what tobacco do you like? And I had just, I had just gotten my first tin of uh, Rattray's Black Mallory. And I said, well, I'm, I'm really liking Black Mallory right now. And he said, Rattray's? I said, yeah. And he said, what else? And I said, well, uh, I'm, I'm a real fan of Bengal Slices and Balkan Sobrani, both the white and the, and the 759. And he said, huh. If I put you in the humidor, what cigar are you going to pick? And I said, uh, Macanudo, uh, Duke of Devon, Maduro. And I was just, you know, firing off answers as quickly as I could. And he was asking questions as fast as he could. And he said, can you climb a ladder? And I said, I had just left Louisville Fire Department. And he said, you're hired. When can you start? I said, now? He said, well, try tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, literally the, the first day that I was in, D.C. and I had moved up there in extreme conditions. There was 10 inches of snow on the ground, and I had arrived with a U-Haul truck hauling a car in back of it. And literally within a day of getting in the city, I had a part-time job so that I could uh, I could start school at Montgomery College in uh, the next semester. I I got I, I got to say I love any job where the where the interview process is. What do you like to smoke? That yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that had to be uh, that had to be one of the strangest interviews you've ever had. Well, yeah, one of the best too. Yeah. Uh, I, I always enjoyed working with Dave. He was always direct and to the point. He trained me on the cash register. I'd never done any work in retail before, and he asked, you know, where did you get your ideas? Where did you buy your stuff? You know, where did you where did you come up you know, from Louisville, Kentucky? Where did you come up with Rattray's Black Mallory? And I told him about Sir Calabash and told him about Al Eaton. And he said, well, of course, we're going to have to get references on you. And I said, well, okay. <laughs> and he, he sent a letter to the Louisville Fire Department. And unbeknownst to me, in my departure, Larry Bonifon, who had been a captain in the uh, firehouse on one of the companies where I was for a short time, was now the chief, or then the chief, and he actually wrote a letter to Dave Barnes talking about me and saying, yes, you should hire this guy. He's a friend of mine. He'll do good for you. And um, I was I was so impressed by that, and Dave was too. He was, a, he was a joy to work for. Actually, both of them were, Larry and Dave Barnes. But yeah, I've had, I've had that. That was the best interview I've ever had in my entire life, and the shortest. Now, when you were working for Georgetown, could you freely sample tobaccos and cigars, or did you have to? Did they have a deal for employees? Any house tobacco, we could smoke a bowl whenever we wanted. We could take uh, we could take some away with us if we wanted to. I've still got a little bit of uh, old Georgetown cellared in a ceramic jar here near me uh, that I bought a couple of years ago, and it just ages nice and and. Um, Anyway, at the time, we could get a pretty healthy discount on uh, pipe tobaccos, and it was our practice between Dave and uh, Bob Howard and Mark Porter and me, when we were all working there, we would keep some tin tobaccos out, and I would maybe one week put a new tin tobacco on my timesheet, and I would get that at Georgetown's cost, and we would share it. You know, and that's, 
that's I think one of the things I liked best about being working in a pipe shop and uh, and in fact being with other pipe smokers in uh, in our local club is you know, the, the fact that we share tobacco so readily. Yeah, and I, I, mean, I could talk about retail all day long, but you also got a chance to work for one day in the tobacco fields. Was that in Kentucky? Yes, sir. That was uh, that was a good de- good deal earlier, and it was. Uh, in connection with a, a church group I was working with at the time, and a fellow uh, who was related to one of the members of the church needed some hands to help him get his tobacco crop in. It was getting a little late in the season, and he didn't have enough people, and I joined in. I volunteered to do that, and it was tough. We uh, we cut uh, the tobacco that was still standing. A lot of it had been cut already, but like I said, he was short of hands. And uh, we, we cut the last bit of the crop, um, and then we went back and picked up the other tobacco, staked it, uh, put it on the wagon, and put it up in the barns. And uh, it's amazing you can say it that fast, uh, because it was a good 14 hours worth of labor. And it was, uh, it was a good day. It was a hot day. Uh, I think the, the thing I remember most about it was that I got fed extremely well. <laughs> so, but not a uh, not a job you wanted to do for a full-time living well you know there wasn't much of an opportunity for me to do that for a full-time living and i'm kind of glad there wasn't it was a lot more work than i thought it was going to be um and uh, handing the tobacco up in uh into the the rafters of the tobacco barn that was that was one of my jobs and i don't know whether it's easier to deal with the extreme heat in a tobacco barn up in the rafters or whether it's uh um, just as hard to do that as it is to hand up those those staked tobacco leaves, those hands of tobacco. They uh, they get heavy after a while, and we filled up a barn. Uh, did you get nicotine poisoning from handling all the tobacco? No, not at all. I might have been wearing gloves. I cannot recall, but um, there was nothing. There was nothing like a, um, anything associated with nicotine at all. It was pretty good tobacco. It wasn't an award-winning crop. It wasn't like something that you'd see at the Kentucky State Fair where the hand of tobacco looks very pristine. You know, some of it was pretty damaged. There had been uh, a little bit more weather than was good there. Some of the tobacco got muddy. It probably was not going to sell very well, but we did get the guy's crop in. And there was, I don't know if there was another harvest that came out of that land or not, but it was the last time I had a chance to volunteer in that capacity and i haven't done it since um, i've always remembered it though as you can well imagine it was a, a day of labor that was not easy to forget that's a perfect spot for us to take a break when we come back we'll talk um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more pipe smoking and we'll we'll get into this author thing eventually i promise so stay with us we'll be back in just a minute okay Being at the forefront of craft tobacco production for over 20 years, we've been involved in some rather interesting projects at Cornell & Deal. From the Cellar Series to the Small Batch Project, we're extremely proud of how far we've come. So moving forward, we wanted to take it back to basics, and that's what the Burley Flake Series is all about. Burley is an underrated varietal, but there is a ton of nuance there using various condimental tobaccos to accentuate different aspects of the air-cured leaf. Each blend in this series is intended to showcase different individual subtleties inherent to Burley. It's a simple concept, one that I think really speaks to the essence of what we do at C&D as a crew of folks who just love tobacco. 
It's also really good. Cornell and Deal's Burley Flakes series, wherever fine tobaccos are sold. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, visiting with uh, with Mark Johnson. And all right, Mark. So last we left off, you were working at Georgetown, going to school. Did you did you finish your degree and get there, and then get back to Louisville? Actually, I I took probably thirty seven credits from Montgomery Community College, and spent a year in Lexington where I worked for Strauss Tobacconist for a while after, of course, after I left Georgetown, uh, Strauss hired me pretty quickly because of my experience there. In fact, they called me a tobacconist. They said, <laughs> oh, we have a tobacconist. Um, I didn't do anything to earn that title except work three years for Georgetown, but uh, they evidently respected that. Um, and after that year in Lexington, I started my undergrad career again in University of Louisville uh, along about 1983, I think it was. So, what did you Where end up? For, uh, uh, what did you end up getting your degree in? English. I got uh, an English degree, an undergraduate degree, which, curiously enough, was supposed to be 120 semester hours. And somehow, having transferred 37 hours in, which were all accounted for in my transcript. I somehow graduated with 157 hours for an English degree, which sort of adds up sort of funny there. I, I think somehow or another I got, well, whatever. I got a good education there at U of L, <laughs> And I went on to uh, uh, do a master's degree there as well. And I worked on a PhD there and also at University of Kentucky. Uh, I never finished those since I was working in the community college system, teaching writing and literature classes. Yeah. All right. So why, why get into, why teaching writing? I mean, it, it's, it's a dying art, but back then it wasn't. What, what sparked your interest in teaching writing? Actually, I hadn't gone into it looking to teach writing, Brian. I, uh, I was put up for by one of my um, faculty mentors. I was put up for a fellowship in the humanities after I graduated with the BA, I was put up for that fellowship, and it never really transpired. The, uh, the funding for that was not available that year. And my mentor said, I would still like to see you go on and, and work on your master's if you could, and I'll put you up for a, a teaching assistantship. And I said, well, okay, I can do that, because that meant I would teach two classes and take two classes. I would get a stipend for my, my teaching, and I would be working on my master's degree, which I thought was at least moving forward. When I walked into a writing classroom for the first time, teaching English one-on-one course, I had no earthly idea what I was in for, but my mentor said, watching me, it was like a duck in water. <laughs> and I just knew what to do from the very beginning, and um, I found that I loved it. I loved working with, uh, with students on their writing. I've never seen myself as a great writer. I've never thought, oh, yes, I'm going to write the great American novel one day. I have friends whom I see like that. But I never thought of myself as that person who was just given to writing. I never did poetry, never kept a little journal of, uh, of scribblings. I would not again try my hand at a story, but I never showed them to anyone else. I just sort of kept them, kept them mum. And when I got into teaching writing, it fit. And when I got to the opportunity to work for Jefferson 
Community and Technical College, which I started in 88, um, again, it was, it was like a natural fit for me. Uh, and I think all those years ago when I, I thought that God might have been calling me to preach, he was actually calling me to teach. Um, but I'm kind of hard of hearing in my right ear, and you know, <laughs> that's how that goes. I ended up putting 35 years into it over all told in, uh, at UofL and uh, in the community college system. So I had a good run at it. You know, there's really sort of a dying art, though. But there's really not much of a difference in my mind between preaching and teaching. You're trying to communicate and get a message out and reach those people, and you know, maybe trigger something inside of them that will lead them on a on a uh, on a different path. Well, that's true. That's true. A lot of um, a lot of teaching is uh, trying to build inspiration. Uh, mostly for freshman writers, I had to get them to the place where they could see that one draft wasn't going to do it. Um, <laughs> that's what I found is the case for me. I'm a multi-draft kind of writer. I've got to get a version down that sounds good to me, and then I got to work on making it work for someone else. So, but so going that doesn't back, make you a very popular teacher. Yeah, but going back to your teaching, is it comma but or no comma with the but or but and then comma? <laughs> it depends on what's either side of the but. Uh, I could go on this all day. <laughs> I've, I've often I've often thought that if I were named by Native Americans, I would be called circles comma errors, but. Um, <laughs> That may or may not be the case. <laughs> and and if I was, I'd be called butt comma, uh, or just <laughs> or, or just butt. Uh, <laughs> so has has pipe smoking been with you all this time? Did you take a break in there? How how often were you smoking? Were you smoking in the classroom back then? I've never smoked in the classroom. I uh, attended school at a time when you could smoke in the classroom. Um, but typically, it never worked for me, except in a couple of classes where I was working with a mentor of mine, Mary Ellen Rickey, who uh, didn't mind the tobacco smoke, especially the, the smell of a Latakia blend. Um, she was pretty much okay with that, but um, you could smoke in the classroom at that, at that point in time. But I never did smoke much in the classroom. But since I started smoking pipes, I've never really stopped. I might have slowed down to the point where I would have maybe a couple of pipes a week. I think typically I'm a one-time-a-day smoker at the very least. If I'm writing sometime, I'll go through a couple of pipes, um, maybe have one in the evening, when I meet with the local guys from the um, Derby City Pipe Club, I'll typically have one, maybe two bowls. But I've never really stopped. I've never really taken up cigarettes or anything like that. I uh, would smoke an occasional cigar, but for the most part, had been a pipe man all that time. And it was never something where you were craving the nicotine, so you'd smoke it when you wanted to and you know, smoke when you want to and smoke when you felt like it. Right. I don't have to have a pipe. I don't have to pick it up. You know, it's not like my hands are shaking or anything. I, uh, I like to have a pipe uh, when I'm writing, uh, but oftentimes after I light it, you know, I, I'll set it down in order to chase a thought and I won't get back to it for a long time and I'll relight it later. So one bowl can last me a very long time. <laughs> and yeah. 
you know, I think for me that um, for me the the pipe is always an object of comfort. You know, it's a it's a it's a way of feeling at home wherever I am. You know, to have a have a pipe, and to, especially if you get to share it with somebody. You know, somebody else is is with you in your in your smoking pipes. That goes back to my dad and his dad and all those men in my life who would sit around and chat about things, and you know, they would uh, they would have pipes with them. All right, so let let's get to the reason why I wanted to have you on here because you have finished and it's going to be out soon a new Sherlock Holmes novel. Yes, indeed, it's called Sherlock Holmes and the Case of the Undead Client. <laughs> now I know that that sounds like okay, zombies and Sherlock Holmes. Yes, yeah. but it's um, it's a novel about the Jack the Ripper murders which started because I was having a conversation with my friend Michael and I said, uh, how come no one has written a Holmes and zombie book about the Ripper murders? Cause if you've ever looked at any of the old photographs uh, of the poor Ripper victims, they were just torn apart. And uh, I thought that looks like zombie work. And uh, my friend said, well, no one's written one yet because they're waiting for you to do it. And I said, okay, you know, give it a shot. So I did along about three years ago. Now I, uh, I I put it together. I put it together as a novel, and it was the probably the third or fourth novel I actually took to completion. Um, the first couple of them, one was for a contest, another was with a friend of mine, and it was a gigantic thing, a, a vampire saga, and uh, it was it was well, my wife read it. I think she's one of the only people who's read it. Amy's read it, and it terrified her. She actually um, would not uh, would not read it at night anymore um, after after she got into it for a bit. So that was one vote of confidence. But it was nine hundred pages, Brian. I oh, mean, good lord! I, yeah, I, I, compared Maybe. to compared to that, Moby Dick is a leaflet. I know, I know. <laughs> my friend uh, Cass Johnson, who uh, wrote it with me, we switched chapters. His character, then my character, and his character, my character, and it was a long, long saga. And it um, it had to do with this reportedly historical um, occasion of vampire depredation in Serbia. So we set it around historical context, and we did our research. And um, that, it turns out, is, is one of the more fun parts of writing for me. Coming from an academic background, I, I love the research part of it. And I, I really don't like to stint in it, although uh, a lot of times you find yourself in a fictional world having to just figure what the – the best answer could be given the historical context. <laughs> so with the, with the Holmes book, I, uh, I, I did a ton of research on London itself. Of course, I had to work with the Holmes canon to make sure that uh, the time frame worked for the other cases in 19, or excuse me, 1888, that time of the uh, Ripper murders. So, I got it together. Um, I took it to um, a literary conference here in Louisville, and it was in February, I think, three years ago, maybe four years ago now, Brian. And I had a chance to pitch it to an agent. And my idea for the pitch was to say, okay, all right, imagine um, Night of the Living Dead meets A Study in Scarlet. And she <laughs> stared at me for a moment. Um, the Victoria Lee, my agent, she stared at me for a moment, her hand over her mouth, and I kept on burbling. I was just saying, okay, it's mostly a character study of Dr. John Watson who has to go down the path of uh, 
this sort of terrible burden that he must carry and all that. So I was burbling on and on. She said, stop, stop. You've got a Sherlock Holmes and zombie novel? I said, yes. She said, is it complete? And I said, well, in the first draft. She said, you have a whole book? I said, yes, it's ready to go. <laughs> she said, may I see it? And I said, are you going to be my agent? She said, well, that depends. Depends a lot on whether I like this book. And two weeks later, she was my agent, and she still is. Uh, you know, I think I, I find it coincidental that you're writing a book that's based in 1880s England, which is, you know, pretty much Victorian England, and her name is Victoria. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought that was odd, too. Um, but she didn't make anything of it. Uh, so we kind of passed over that. So how and does. I was so excited to have an agent. I, I, how does one get the the rights or the okay to to write uh, to write and use the Sherlock Holmes character? Well, the uh, copyright laws say that you have to you have to uh, respect the the use of character and plot details ninety nine years after they are first mentioned in public print. So, I was really pretty safe in the last. Oh, two years producing a Holmes novel, the Supreme Court found in favor of a fellow about three and a half years ago, I think maybe four years ago now, who had produced um, a collection of Holmes stories from a variety of writers, and he'd published them, and evidently the Doyle estate sued him for uh, violation of, of copyright laws, and the Supreme Court said, no, I'm sorry, 99 years, you don't get to cover it. So if if I had um, if I had written something that directly cited or referenced something that had been published 99 years before, even let's say in the late works by Conan Doyle, um, like the, um, the Valley of Fear, for instance, one of the later novels, it's full of all sorts of uh, contradictions and timeline for the Holmes canon. But you know, leaving that aside, it was one of the places where. In 1914, it was published, and some of those characters were considered new characters. So I couldn't really, I couldn't really go after those characters or use those characters in that situation. I had to, I had to work with the original context of Holmes and Watson, their lodgings in Baker Street, and the 1888 timeframe um, during which they were in their early days. They were, they were quite, uh, quite young as a detecting group at that particular point in time. Uh, and you're not crazy in making Sherlock Holmes, you know, use a patch or nicotine gum or anything like that. Your your Sherlock Holmes actually smokes a pipe. Yes, as does Watson. They are uh, they are always seen in the company of a pipe and tobacco somewhere. Uh, in fact, I had poor Watson lament after a, a particularly nasty encounter with the bad guys that the pipe he pulled from his his pocket a um, a brand new um, Lovat from the uh, the Lowe Company in London. Yeah, um, it was its stem was broken, and so he had to borrow one of Holmes's old clays to uh, smoke in the interim. <laughs> so I put little details like that in for the pipe guys. You know, um, I couldn't really go that far into it because then editors begin to say, "Oh, this takes away from the story." You know, you're going too far into these details. No one cares about that. Um, which I found was one of the uh, one of the big dangers of being. Uh, having any sort of scholarly background and doing your research, and you want to put in stuff that is just so cool that you found, and you put it in, and <laughs> your uh, your editor says, "Why is why is this here? This doesn't lead the story anywhere." Yeah, but it's cool. No, it's not cool. Cut it. I'm like, oh, okay. 
you end up with a nine you end up with a nine hundred page Serbian vampire novel. <laughs> Which you know when I get uh, when I get famous like Stephen King, someone will go, "Hey, wait a minute, you've got this other nine hundred pages. It's a real page turner, huh?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be like my own variation of the stand or something i don't know but um <laughs> that'd be fun if someone went back and found all those things that i wrote before so where where and when can we find this uh where and when can we find the book along about the first of december it should be available online primarily through burns and lee media uh you want to look for my pen name mj downing I know you're talking to MJ Downing now. It's an official MJ Downing conversation. Uh, Mark Johnson is sitting in the background somewhere, but uh, that's the name that was picked for me as my pen name. Um, it's a it's a good name because Downing is right next to Doyle on that list of books. So you know, if your eye is looking across the lists and you're looking for Sherlock Holmes, you will see both Sherlock Holmes and a D name, and you're like, oh, wait a minute, Sherlock Holmes and the Undead Client. Maybe that'll work. And, so, yeah, and, and it could be you know it, it it could be a code for you know either Michael Jackson or Michael Jordan or uh... <laughs> there's a lot of MJ's Magic Johnson Downing, yeah. There you go. Uh, no, we're we're looking forward to it, and hopefully, uh, I, I'm assuming hopefully it'll be on all the ebook readers and all that stuff down the road. It should be available on a wide variety of ebook readers like Kindle and Nook and things of that nature. So we'll we'll keep an eye out for it. Uh, might even be a really good Christmas present for all the uh, for all the pipe smoker friends of yours and uh, or uh, people that just like you know vampire gory slayer type stuff. Well, it should fit that niche. It's <laughs> uh, it's 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 not a gore fest by any stretch of the imagination, but it is not for the faint of heart. I think at least I've been told that. Um, and my friends uh, in the, the uh, uh, Derby City Pipe Group have been have been just chattering my ear off about when can we read this book? They've been hearing about it, and going through all of its changes. I think I think literally the the ninth version of the book is the one that will be published. Well, I'm so. looking forward to it. So. Uh... MJ, we will uh, wrap this up with the Fast Five final questions. No right answer, no wrong answer, okay. just whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. What is your favorite pipe? Absolutely. The Chris Asterio that I'm smoking right now. Picked it up in Chicago last year. And what's your favorite tobacco? Uh, that's a puzzler. I'm smoking some Odyssey right now. Um Penzance, Odyssey, things of that nature. I uh, I do like a good flake now and again, but I am one of those Latakia guys, Brian. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's your favorite drink? And keep in mind, you live in Kentucky. Yeah, and I'm a Scotch guy. Ooh, oh. Um, right after iced tea, it would have to be Scotch. I think. Yeah. Um, although I don't get a lot of that, uh, but really, really fine single malt Scotch. Uh, when it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? I gotta go with movies. Uh, Sherlock Very visual. Holmes. I try to keep that in mind as I write. <laughs> That's uh, listen. The way an author makes money now is the book gets picked up for a film. So, yeah, I wouldn't complain. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. I wouldn't complain at all. And then lastly, if you have a favorite pipe smoking related memory that you haven't talked about, and if you don't mention the one that I'm thinking of, I'll uh, add that one. I'll, I'll make you say that one too. Okay. I think my favorite one, it probably is the one you're thinking about, is uh, the time when I was in D.C. Uh, several years after I left Georgetown, and I, uh, I had an occasion to have my infant daughter with me in a snuggly, and I was driving around um, D.C. while her mother was in a conference, and I stopped in Georgetown Tobacco, and uh, Dave Berkebile was there. And we had, we had not seen each other in years, but he knew me right off, and he was just enthralled that I was back. And he was such a, he was always such a good gentleman to me, such a fine person. And he seemed so glad to see me. And he said, before we went very long in the conversation, he said, say, you ever heard of Ashton Pipes? And I said, well, yes, I've heard of them. I couldn't afford one, certainly not on the community college budget anyway. And he said, you know, I just got this, uh, this pebble grain back um, from a customer who didn't like the bit. Something about it didn't suit him right. I took it back. But I can't really do anything for it. Would you smoke that for me? And I said, <laughs> absolutely, I will with joy, Dan. And it was one of those is one of those moments that was you know complete surprise, unexpected, and uh, I walked away with uh, a really a really fond memory of, uh, of all my time there at, at Georgetown, and especially working with guys like Dave Berkebile. Yeah, he's uh, he, he he's kind of an interest uh, an industry legend, and I'm and I'm glad you shared that with us, and uh, Mark. Once again, thank you for coming on, and we will. Uh, I'll make sure and let everybody know as soon as the book's available, so that they can uh, start getting their downloads or whatever we do nowadays with it. That is fantastic, Brian. I appreciate it. And we'll be back in just a minute. Italians have always been known for their aesthetic passion. It's their birthright, their legacy. And just like Savinelli, it continues to grow and evolve. It is ever-changing. Milan, 1876. Achille Savinelli set out to change the way the world viewed smoking pipes, opening one of the world's first specialist tobacco shops. From one small storefront to a factory that delivered handmade pipes all over the world, the legacy he forged became one filled with success and prestige. Achilles' dream is carried on today by his family, who continues the Savinelli legacy. Each year, Savinelli debuts a series of new, forward-thinking designs, comprised of quality-crafted pipes shaped from some of the best briar in the world. Behind every beautiful object, there's a story. Start your own chapter. Visit your local tobacconist or premium online dealer today. This is Internet Radio. And we are back. I will uh, make sure and let you know when uh, when MJ Downing's book comes out and when it's available and where it's available. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. All right. For music, we go way back to a suggestion from Kirby Booth. And Kirby pointed out to me Tim Flannery, who is a uh, baseball player. Uh, let's see. Tim was a longtime Major League Baseball player and then was a third base coach for the Giants and now has a bluegrass country band um kind of a crossover and there's even a shot of him where he's smoking a pipe so this is uh, tim flannery from the album last of the old dogs and it's called company man 
Started working here when I was 21 Summer of 56, my life had just begun Back then this place was some place to be Thought I could grow with the company Never took a dime, never raised a fuss Right is right, even for those of us Who make a dollar while the man makes ten They say hard work pays off in the end Everything I got, I got with my own Never wanted to be no company So I kept my eyes open, my mouth shut Saw my workload increasing my pay cut But I bought a house and started a family Still had some faith in the company Hard times hit late Devil must have opened up the floodgates My wife, she left me for some other guy And in my heart, I guess I always knew why She was never gonna understand Never wanted to be no
That was uh, Tim Flannery from the album Last of the Old Dogs, Company Man. And uh, Tim played baseball for 10 years uh, with the Padres and then went on to coach and broadcast and uh, has done has put out over a dozen albums of bluegrass and country music, uh, either solo or with his band called the Lunatic Fringe. So check him out. You've got mail. Not really much of a mailbag for this week because I'm recording this just as the just as last week's show is going out. Uh, but I do want to remind you that if you have comments or questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com or post them on the Pipes Magazine radio show page. Uh, follow me on Facebook and uh, connect with me there. I uh, would love to hear your hear your comments. If you have any suggestions or requests for uh, pipe parts or show guests, uh, this would be a good time. I've uh, I've got a few ideas coming up, and we've got stuff. You know, we've got some guests lined up. But if you have anybody that you'd like to hear on the show or hear again on the show, please let me know, and I'll uh, do my best to make that happen. Um, now I will take this time to tell you why am I in Las Vegas, or why am I just now coming back from Las Vegas? Well. It's because part of my travel agent training said, uh, look around at other dates and see what deals pop up. So my wife is on the trip with me. And originally we were going to go out on Thursday, come back on Monday. Same, you know, same days that I would normally do the trip. And we looked at the, uh, at the airfares and the airfare to Charlotte to Las Vegas for uh, decent flights, you know, flights that weren't at the crack of dawn and going to three, going to two different states and stopping over or coming back on a red eye and, you know, flights that I don't like. Uh, for decent flights, the two round trip tickets were twelve hundred dollars. Uh, the hotel was going to be uh, uh, the the two round trip tickets were twelve fifty. The hotel was going to be five hundred dollars for the four nights. I started bouncing stuff around and looking at stuff. And found that if we went out on Thursday and came back Tuesday, it got cheaper. And if we came back on, uh, if we went out on Wednesday and came back Monday, it was cheaper than that. And if we went out Monday and came back Tuesday, the airfares went from $1,250 for the two of us to $750 for the two of us round trip with really good middle of the day, perfect nonstop flights. So I called the hotel and said, what kind of deals do you have for extending a trip to six days? And they automatically threw in another 30% discount. So the hotel, instead of being $500 for four nights, became $550 for six nights. I saved $450 by going to Vegas for two extra nights. Now, we can easily spend that in Vegas, so we'll try not to. Um, but we will have the extra time to relax in the hotel and, uh, you know, maybe walk around some of those great shops and, uh, and just, you know, absorb a little bit more of Vegas that we didn't get to see when we were out there in June. But this is the kind of stuff that a travel agent gets trained on and learns. Now, I may not be able to uh, help you book a trip like that, but I will definitely advise you on it. And I'll advise you if... I can't get you the best deal. I will let you know that, you know, hey, you can get a better deal if you book it yourself directly. Uh, however, all I ask is 
just give me a chance. And I can also tell you how to travel with pipes and, you know, some in, in the case of like the Disney parks, I can tell you some of the better places to go pipe smoking. And I also know when you get to hotels and resorts and stuff like that, especially in the Caribbean or on the beaches or even in Europe, I know the questions to ask to make sure and that you'll have a comfortable place to sit with your pipe. So just reach out to me, brian.levine at mei-travel.com. And uh, give me a shot at your uh, at booking your vacation for you. It won't cost you any more than if you booked it direct, I guarantee you. And if I can save you some time and save you some money, hey, maybe you'll have a little bit better vacation. All right, uh, observation rave time coming up next. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. the subject of what's old is new again and what's new becomes old again and hopefully this will happen with pipes well uh so years ago i complained about itunes and only being able to you know buying one song at a time and da 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 well i have now embraced itunes and if you go back to the 1950s if you'll remember well, most records were sold as singles. A band had one, had an A side and a B side, and very few were actually putting out long playing albums. Those really didn't come into popularity until the late 50s and then into the 60s. Well, now the long playing album is a thing of the past, and I'm we're looking at a world where bands are going to put out, you know, two or three songs at a time, or they'll wait and yeah they'll drop one song then drop another one and then create a whole album for it and stuff like that well this is just going back to what happened in the 1940s 1950s you never bought a whole long playing album uh one of the benefits to itunes having that available to you is if you only want one song off of that album because that may be the only song that you want to have available to you well, that's great. Then you can go in and just buy one song. So between Spotify and where you can play the whole album, and I don't have the premium one, I just have the free one. I listen to a few commercials here and there. But I can hear the whole album, and then if there's a song that I want to have with me when I'm in the car, I go on iTunes, download it onto my iPhone, and away I go, and I'm not worried about memory because I was smart this time and actually bought the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> bought the big iPhone. So uh, what's old again is, or what's old is new again and vice versa. And maybe we can see that with pipe smoking. All right. I want to thank Mark for joining us. I can't wait for his book to come out. Uh, if you get a chance, leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. We would appreciate that. And
and thank you all for tuning in. Until next time. When we're together Just sing a song And think about sunny weather Happy Michael Jordan plays ball, Charles Manson kills people, I talk. Everyone has a talent.